Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Friday, August 25th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, Ukrainians to start F-16 training inside the U.S. So a U.S. official told the New York Times on Thursday that the Pentagon will begin training Ukrainian pilots on F-16 fighter jets inside the United States, and that could start as early as September. The U.S. initially said that the training would only be conducted in Europe unless the countries leading it, the Netherlands and Denmark, reached capacity. So, you know, this whole time since President Biden gave the green light for this whole F-16 plan back in May, you know, the U.S. was saying that the Europeans were taking the lead. You know, they got it covered. Don't worry about it. Um, But earlier this week, uh, Sabrina Singh, she's a Pentagon spokeswoman, she said that the U.S. was open to training Ukrainian pilots if these countries were at capacity and if they couldn't train as many pilots as Ukrainian wanted as the Ukrainians wanted. So it looks like that's what happened here, because as I've been covering lately, there's been all these reports saying, you know, the training in Europe, it's only going to, they're only going to start with six Ukrainian pilots, and that's going to take 10 months to get them done. And then the next batch won't be done until six months after that. So the Ukrainians, I'm sure we're not happy with that. And the U.S. trying to make them happy is now going to start this training program inside the United States. And they've done other trainings for Ukrainians inside the U.S. Kind of, there's I know there's been some general training, but they also train them on the Patriot missile systems inside the United States. Um, so this U.S. official said that the training would start with English lessons in Texas, followed by months of flying lessons in Arizona. So earlier this year, the Air Force concluded that at least some Ukrainian pilots could learn to operate F-16s within four to five months. But it's not clear how long the full training process will take inside the United States. They uh, earlier this year, they a few Ukrainian pilots came to the U.S. and the idea was to assess their skills to see how long it would take to train them on F-16s. So that goes to show, I think the U.S. has been, you know, expecting to be training Ukrainian pilots on F-16s at one point or another. Um, so. The Washington Post recently reported that the training in Europe involves four months of English classes and then six months of combat training, and the first class of Ukrainians just got started with that. So, you know, either way, even if, say, the training in the U.S. only takes four months, which I doubt it'll be that quick, you know, that means Ukrainians still are not getting these planes, not getting their first F-16s until next year. And so far, the Netherlands and Denmark are the only two countries that have pledged they will give F-16s to Ukraine, but I'm sure, you know, especially seeing this, and I've, this is another thing I've suspected, it, you know, the, the U.S. is probably going to end up giving them F-16s as well. Um, you know, they they just haven't announced it yet, but they also haven't ruled it out. Again, you know, they sold this as the Europeans really, you know, were, were chomping at the bit to get this F-16 program going. So we said, you know, go ahead, you guys take care of it. But of course, you know, the U.S. is stepping in and it's probably going to end up stepping in with planes, I'm sure, as well. Uh, All right. 
So the next one here, the Wall Street Journal says that U.S. and Ukraine are clashing over the counteroffensive strategy. So the Wall Street Journal reported Thursday that U.S. and Ukrainian officials have clashed over the strategy for Ukraine's counteroffensive during behind-the-scenes conversations in recent weeks. So the U.S. has been pushing Ukraine to use combined armed arms tactics that Ukrainian forces learned from NATO during training in Europe ahead of the counteroffensive. The U.S. also wants Ukraine to concentrate its forces to make a big push toward the Sea of Azov to sever Russia's land bridge to Crimea. Um, so there's an interesting quote here from Zelushny, the Ukrainian commander-in-chief. It's not a direct quote. This is what a U.S. official, what one of the Wall Street Journal sources said he said. But anyway, he apparently said, quote, you don't understand the nature of the conflict. This is not counterinsurgency. This is Kursk, end quote. So it's interesting because, you know, he's right that the U.S. Uh, hasn't fought a war like this in so long. And he said Kursk, which is referring to a World War II battle between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, you know, a huge battle. And um, I just think, you know, it's interesting. And I, I remember reading reports about American veterans going to fight in Ukraine, you know, veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and it just being, you know, a totally different ball game to them, you know, this type of war. Um, so when it comes to the combined arms tactics that the U.S. wants Ukraine to use, the idea is for them to integrate armored vehicles, artillery, and infantry. U.S. officials have said that Ukraine is relying too much on artillery and not pushing hard enough against Russian defenses, which include vast minefields. The Wall Street Journal, sorry, the New York Times recently reported that the U.S. fears Ukraine has become too casualty averse, demonstrating Washington's lack of concern for Ukrainian lives. So Ukraine's main argument, and I think it's a good argument, against using the combined arms tactics is the fact that NATO would never do this without air superiority. That's what, uh, you know, you, some U.S. officials have acknowledged that. You know, so they're asking them to do something that they would never do. Uh, so the combined arms, you know, one of those arms that should be combined with it is air power, and the Ukrainians don't have it. And if you remember, in the first few weeks of the counteroffensive, Ukraine did launch, you know, a pretty big push in the south using armored vehicles, and, you know, it resulted in very heavy losses. Um, the New York Times says that they lost 20% of all the equipment that they deployed to the battlefield. You know, we don't know the casualty numbers because Ukraine's not telling us, um, but I'm sure that they were very high as well in that first few weeks. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so U.S. officials told the Wall Street Journal that there's still more time for Ukraine to regain significant territory in its counteroffensive, if, you know, they change their tactics the way that the U.S. wants them to. And Zelushny has said that his forces are on the cusp of a breakthrough. Uh, but the Washington Post reported last week that the U.S. intelligence community has determined that Ukraine's counteroffensive will not reach the southern city of Militopol, thus failing its objective to sever the land bridge. So while U.S. officials are blaming the faltering counteroffensive on Ukraine's tactics, it was clear from the start that the U.S., did not think Ukraine could regain much territory. That was according to the Discord leaks and other media reports. Um, you know, despite what Blinken was saying publicly, that no, you know, they have everything that they need. Um, 
you know, I think it was there was enough reports, and there was also comments from Ukrainian officials saying that they 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 didn't have enough. Um, so you know, they're again really just trying to shift the blame onto Ukraine. It seems like with these leaks to the media. All right, so the next one here: Putin comments on the Prigozhin plane crash. So Russian President Vladimir Putin on Thursday called Wagner chief. Evgeny Prigozhin, a man of complicated destiny, a day after a plane believed to be carrying the mercenary leader crashed in Russia's Tver Oblast, killing everyone on board. So Putin uh, offered his condolences for the people that died in the crash, and he said, quote, I have known Prigozhin for a long time, since the 1990s. He made some serious mistakes in life but he also achieved the necessary results for himself, but also for the greater good when I asked him. He was a talented man, a talented businessman, end quote. So kind of interesting comments. And discussing Prigozhin's role in Ukraine, Putin said that the Wagner force, quote, made a significant contribution to the fight against Nazism in Ukraine, end quote. So while Prigozhin is presumed to be dead, it has not been officially confirmed by Russian authorities. According to TASS, Putin said that forensic examinations were being conducted. Uh, Russia's Air Transport Authority, they said that Prigozhin was listed as being on the plane. Uh, and it was Prigozhin and as well as Dmitry Utkin, who was a Wagner commander, believed to be you know, his second in command and the, one of the co-founders of the mercenary group. So Putin said that Prigozhin had returned to Russia from Africa earlier in the day on Wednesday before the crash. Earlier this week, a video of Prigozhin where he appeared to be in Africa was posted on Telegram. And that was said to be his first video address since his short-lived mutiny against the Russian military establishment in June. So the plane that crashed had departed from Moscow and was headed to St. Petersburg, which is Prigozhin's hometown. And on Thursday, there was sort of a makeshift unofficial memorial for him. I saw some pictures of it online. Um, so the cause of the crash is unclear, and it's become the subject of lots of speculation. And was interesting, on Thursday, U.S. officials made conflicting claims to the media. So Reuters quoted you know, two anonymous U.S. officials who said that it was likely downed by a surface-to-air miss missile that was launched inside Russia. While other U.S. officials told the New York Times, and then I think there was other reports that said this as well, that the plane was likely downed by an explosion and that it could have been caused by a bomb planted on the aircraft. Um, so saying different things. Um, so let me, again, you know, let me know what, what you guys think, you know, who, who you think might have done it or, you know, how it was done. Um, Again, you know, there was the Telegram channels, Russian Telegram channels saying both things to surface to air missile or a bomb. You know, lots of people saying different things. Um, we'll see. And we'll see if there's official confirmation of his death from uh, Russian authorities. All right. So the next one here, Ukraine claims that troops landed on Crimea in a nighttime raid. So Ukraine's military intelligence claimed on Thursday that Ukrainian troops landed on the western shore of Crimea overnight and inflicted casualties on Russian forces. Uh, and this is an operation that has not been confirmed by Russia. So this is Ukraine's military intelligence on Telegram. They wrote, 
quote, during the execution of the task, the Ukrainian defenders engaged in combat with the units of the occupier. As a result, the enemy suffered losses among personnel. Enemy equipment was destroyed. Also, the state flag was raised in the Ukrainian Crimea again. All goals and tasks have been completed. At the end of the special operation, the Ukrainian defenders left the scene without casualties, end quote. Um, so again, you know, this isn't confirmed. Um, I didn't see, I haven't checked. I should have checked more recently, but as of like, you know, kind of late on Thursday, I didn't see Russian Russia comment on this or say anything about this, you know, say that they stopped the raid or anything like that. Um, but Ukrainian attacks on Crimea, they always risk a big escalation of the war. If you remember last year in October 2022, the first time the Crimean bridge was bombed, that's when Russia started their large-scale infrastructure bombings in Ukraine. It started after that. It was pretty much a response to that. Um, so, and this raid comes, or this alleged raid comes, as there has been a big uptick in Ukrainian drone attacks on Crimea and elsewhere, you know, in the Russian mainland. All right. I just want to take this moment to mention again that it is our fundraiser at antiwar.com. We have a message from Dr. Ron Paul at the top of the page. So you go to antiwar.com slash donate to see the different ways that you can help us. And this is how we get by. We are entirely reader funded. And, you know, the way we're able to provide you with this content is because we have to, you know, we keep our integrity by being funded by our readers. But that means that we have to do these fundraisers a few times a year. We need to ask you to, to to help us out, and your money does not get wasted at all. It goes directly to running the website. So please go to antiwar.com/donate if you like this show. And another way you could help is just by sharing uh, the fundraiser, just sharing antiwar.com in general. That always helps out as well. Um, all right, so back to the news here. The next one: uh, Ron DeSantis pledges military action against cartels. So Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said on Wednesday night that he would send the military into Mexico to fight drug cartels on day one of his presidency if he wins the 2024 presidential election. So this was at the Republican presidential debate in Milwaukee. DeSantis was asked if he would support sending in U.S. special forces to take out uh, fentanyl labs and other drug operations inside Mexico. And he said very enthusiastically, he said yes, and that he would do it on day one. He said, quote, we have to reestablish the rule of law and we have to defend our people. The president of the United States has got to use all available powers as commander in chief to protect our country. End quote. Uh, he also claimed that cartels are killing tens of thousands of our fellow citizens. And he's referring to, you know, drug overdoses there and. He said that he would treat them as a foreign terrorist organization. So taking military action across the border would dramatically expand the decades-old failed war on drugs, but this idea is becoming the idea of invading or bombing Mexico in response to the large number of overdoses in the United States is becoming increasingly popular among Republicans. Other 2024 hopefuls have called for military action against cartels, including the front runner, former President Trump. They want to bomb away, uh, you know, this problem. 
And earlier this year, Senators Lindsey Graham and John Kennedy introduced a bill to designate Mexican cartels as foreign terrorist organizations, which, and that bill has a total of six co-sponsors. And Graham said that the purpose of this legislation was to set the stage for military intervention in Mexico. So, you know, and, and this other bill that was introduced also this year was introduced by Dan Crenshaw in the House, and he's a total neocon Republican from Texas. And his bill would authorize the president to use military force. It's an AUMF, and it's very uh, open-ended. You know, you could interpret this in a lot of ways. I'll read what the bill says. It would give the president the authorization to use force against, quote, those responsible for trafficking fentanyl, or a fentanyl-related substance into the United States, or carrying out other related activities that cause regional destabilization in the Western Hemisphere, end quote. So that could be used for all sorts of things. And a lot of times, you know, they blame China for the fentanyl. So, you know, who knows how far that AUMF could go. Um, So that was introduced. I doubt that it's going to come up for a vote this year, but... Again, it's just becoming increasingly more popular, this idea. Crenshaw's bill has 21 co-sponsors. And what's unfortunate is that a lot of the Republicans that are calling for this, that are co-sponsoring this type of legislation, you know, not Crenshaw and Graham, obviously, they're total warmongers, but a lot of the other ones are, you know, some of the more, um, you know, America first type Republicans who think we should uh, not be involved in Ukraine. You know, they support this. So it's just not good. And to see DeSantis, I mean, if you look at the polls, he's, you know, basically number two to Trump. He's pretty far away from Trump. But just to see, like, someone who is a serious contender in this election saying on day one of his presidency he's going to invade Mexico, basically, I think is very concerning, you know. And it's just, it would just be such a disaster and turn the border, you know, if you live near the border, you know, there could, is going to be a real hot war going on um, that, you know, it's just, just not a good idea, in my opinion. All right, the next one here, GOP bloodbath on Ukraine leaves room for agreement on China. So this article is from Kelly Vlahos over at Responsible Statecraft, and it's about the, the debate, and really what she points out here is that there was some argument on Ukraine, and it was mainly this guy Vivek, if I said his name right, Ramaswamy. Um, he said that he would, uh, you know, stop support for Ukraine, scale down Ukraine aid, and DeSantis said he would do it if, if the Europeans didn't pull their weight. That was basically his um, condition. Uh, you know. There's different things. Ramaswamy said that he wanted to direct resources now going to Ukraine to fight the real threat, which he said is China. So anyway, the point Kelly makes in this article is that while there there's all this bickering about Ukraine and other issues, they were all aligned on China, you know, being the real threat. Um, and that is something, you know, you have Vivek and, and again, a lot of Republicans who oppose supporting Ukraine oppose the proxy war against Russia, do it so on the grounds that they want us to be, you know, preparing for this war with China over Taiwan, um, which is unfortunate. Um, So I just thought it's just a good article on it if you want to go check it out. But I just want to read the last paragraph that she has here because I like the way Kelly worded it. 
She said, for all the talk about a divided GOP on foreign policy, it should be clear that when it comes to China, these eight candidates are more in agreement about where the country should be training its firepower than not, pinning them each down on what exactly they are proposing and how far they will go to meet the threat would be an interesting next exercise, sends the bloodletting. So, and also I saw Chris Christie, he, a few weeks ago, he said in an interview, the reason why we have to support Ukraine is because we have to fight China over Taiwan. You know, he's trying to say, they, they try to say that keeping the war going in Ukraine is going to deter China from invading Taiwan or whatever. But he said with Taiwan, we're going to send, you know, American men and women over there to fight. So it's just another example of how with Ukraine, it's a proxy war against Russia. With Taiwan, they're talking about taking China, you know, head on, um, which, you know, could quickly turn into nuclear war. Um, and that's the attitude within the Republican Party. It's it's a little it's more hysterical than the, the Democrats. The Democrats are really bad on China now, too. Um, but, you know, it's kind of flipped with Russia. You know, the Democrats are all really bad on Russia. Republicans, some are good. But, you know, when it comes to China, there's really virtually no opposition to the rising tensions and everything that's going on with Taiwan. Um, all right. So the next one here, BRICS invites six countries to join the bloc. So BRICS has invited six new members to six new members to join the bloc in the most dramatic expansion since it was formed. And this was announced by South Africa's president uh, on the on Thursday, which was the last day of BRICS three day summit in South Africa. So Saudi Arabia, Iran, the UAE, Argentina, Egypt and Ethiopia were invited to join BRICS as full members starting in 2024. The admission of the nations will more than double the size of BRICS, which is currently five countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. The five BRICS nations account for over 40% of the world's population, and the bloc is viewed as a counterweight to the U.S.-led global economic order. The list of invitees is significant because it includes some U.S. allies, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. You know, Egypt gets a few billion dollars in military aid from the U.S. each year. And it also includes Iran, which is a heavily sanctioned country. So U.S. sanctions have spurred the growth of an alternate global financial system and de-dollarization efforts, especially in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russia has found new markets for its oil in India and China since the U.S.-led Western sanctions campaign cut off most energy exports to Europe. Um, but, you know, this didn't start with the Russian invasion, with the sanctions on Russia. This was building for years as the U.S. was getting more sanctions happy, you know, putting all these countries under blockades like Iran, Venezuela, Syria, creating these this alternate market. And, you know, as China's facing sanctions from the U.S., obviously not as bad as those other countries because our economies are so intertwined still. But it's just, you know, it's just this is just the obvious result of the U.S. just trying to bully everybody uh, with sanctions. Um, and this is significant because it was not clear if India would be on board with the expansion. India is kind of balancing its ties between China, Russia, and the West because they're increasing military ties with the U.S. Um, and tensions have been high between China and India over their disputed border in the Himalayas since the 2020 Galwan Valley clashes, which left at least 20 Indian and four Chinese soldiers dead. 
the U.S. took advantage of this and, you know, quickly signed a surveillance uh, military deal with India that allows the U.S. to help India keep an eye on Chinese troops. And they say if the war does turn hot over there, India could use this intelligence for missile strikes, for drone strikes, for things like that. Um, and because of this intelligence sharing, apparently, according to a report from U.S. News, it allowed the U.S. to provide India with intelligence during a skirmish in 2022. And the Chinese and Indian troops deployed in this area are unarmed. Well, they have like sticks and stuff, but they, which is what they fight with, but they don't have guns. Um, so that's why troops usually don't die if they clash. The Galwan Valley was really bad and people were falling. And it's really high altitude, so that could also you know, affect you, affect people. Um, so Chinese President Xi Jinping and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi discussed the disputed border on the sidelines of the BRICS summit on Thursday. So uh, India said that Modi expressed his concerns to Xi and that the two leaders agreed to basically continue talking to try to de-escalate. There's been a lot of rounds of talks between the two nations' militaries since those battles in 2020, but they haven't really reached any breakthroughs, so they deployed a lot of much more military assets to the region after that clash, and they haven't pulled them back. But they're still talking, and they keep saying that they're going to keep talking, which is good because they both are nuclear-armed nations, so we don't want them going to war. And, of course, the U.S. would probably be involved in some way. Uh, but the BRICS stuff is, you know, this is really big. I kind of went on a tangent in this article because I, I always like to mention the India-China border dispute because I think a lot of people don't realize how the U.S. is. Because, you know, imagine that. Imagine the U.S. started you know, invading, you know, sending special ops raids into Mexico. And then China started helping the cartels with, you know, satellite intelligence and things like that. You know, just put the shoe on the other foot. I think it's extremely provocative what the U.S. is doing in this scenario. You know, the border clash, people are killed, and then the U.S. steps in and helps India out. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, that's it for the news for today. Please go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Rebecca Gordon. Does an old Henry A. Kissinger require rehabilitation? And that uh, is an interesting question. It's amazing that he's 100 years old and he just uh, he just traveled to China. Uh, one from Judge Knapp, torture comes home to roost. One from Alexander Rubinstein at the Gray Zone, neocon front launches desperate ad blitz as support for Ukraine war craters. And one from Paul Pillar, new tanker war and U.S. military escalation in the Persian Gulf. That's at Responsible Statecraft. And our spotlight is from Doug Bandow, Ukraine's vain search for wonder weapons. And that's over at the American Conservative. Uh, but that is everything. Again, please help us with our fundraiser, antiwar.com slash donate. Hope everybody has a good weekend. I will be back after the weekend with some more news for you. Thanks for listening.